Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing, www.somapublishing.com. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. We're doing another one of those exciting interview segments. I wish I could do more, but scheduling can sometimes really be the, the, the B word on this sort of thing. We got so many I've been trying to schedule for, I don't know, lo- longer than the Bible, okay? Uh, we got uh, Mike Griffin. He's a, a writing instructor over there in New Jersey. He, he's an author of a number of books, including one that my uh, own publishing house uh, produced, Exposed from Soma Publishing, and he's also editor of Blue Nib. Uh, Mike uh, Griffin, uh, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for joining us. I got, I got to correct you on two things. It's Griffith, T-H. Yeah, like I know how to spell things or, or, or pronounce things. I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> I know. Griffith, and then I'm not with the Blue Nib anymore. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought, I thought you yeah. still were with them because uh, last I checked that you were. All right, all right. Well, sorry about that. Yeah. No, no, no biggie. Hopefully that was a good parting of ways over there, but uh, – yeah, I know you were over there for a while, and it certainly gave you some uh, additional experience on, on the editing front. And so uh, sometimes I have shows or topics that me uh, or sometimes John with me will talk about, and I, I know it gave you a lot more in- insight because you got to do that for a while. It did, and um, I got to say, tact is one of the editor's biggest tools. In the sense that, so somebody sends you a piece, and it is probably dear to their heart. It's something probably they feel, I mean, obviously they feel it ought to be accepted. Obviously they feel it ought to be published. And then you get it as an editor, and you read it, and for you it's just half-baked, or it's not ready for publication, or it's just not what you're looking for. And you've got to be tactful in how you handle that rejection. Every poet, every artist, every writer will tell you, you know, they get the boilerplate form letter. Well, I did my best to not send boilerplate. I did my best to address people as personable, personably as I could uh, in the sense I was personable. And I wanted to be personal in my response back to them about their pieces. So tact was the one thing I probably learned best as an editor over at the Blue Nib because we saw all levels of writers um, from this is my first, literally, uh, you know, you know, some some people would say this is my first poem. What do you think? And others would be very seasoned professionals sending things in. So you have to, you know, talk to both ends of that artistic spectrum. I can't, I can't agree anymore. Uh, I tell you, um, I thought being a parent uh, helped me exercise some of my uh, patient skills, but. As an editor, I seem like I was pressed even more. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it is hard. It's hard because you're dealing with, again, uh, creations that are very near to the creator's heart. And we all feel burned when we're rejected, be it rejected for a raise at work or be it rejected for a date. We ask someone on, well, the product we create, be it a poem, a sculpture, whatever it is, should it not be accepted? We feel that burn. We feel bad about it. So if it's a gentle letdown, it's usually a, a bombing effect. Usually it helps a bit, I think. 
It, it, it does, and it's one of the criticisms I have with many editors out there is that when they're exercising the form letter, they're, they're not sparing anybody any 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 uh, pain or suffering. In many instances, I think they add more to it because that that unknown doesn't really instruct the writer. Even if you have to tell the writer, listen, man, these first great uh, lines, uh, the four or five lines were great, but the rest of them, you need to rework, you need to redo this, rethink about it. I don't, I don't think that's going to devastate somebody versus to send somebody, yeah, I didn't meet our standards, have a good day. I mean, I, I, too much of that, and I don't really think you're an editor anymore. You're just, you know, you're just an email sender. I mean, it, yeah. maybe they should change the title. <laughs> yeah. Well, editors, you know, have... So, so in my position at the Blue Nib, part of it was just gatekeeper, and that's what you're talking about, the sending out the form letter, the yes-no rejection or acceptance, and that's just gatekeeping. That's who we're going to let into this playground at the time, You know, who we're going to allow in the issue, uh, issue 14, issue 15, issue 16, whatever it might be. Well, beyond that, though, if you want to be an instructive, helpful editor, you will give advice. You will say, hey, these first couple of images really work, but your poem peters out at the end. Would you mind rewriting it and resubmitting at a later date? And if you have the time and wherewithal to be able to do that, that lets you become more of a guiding editor as opposed to just yes, no, gatekeeper. But not too many people don't take the time or can't take the time, so they just become the gatekeeper. It's That's the reason why I, I have a real real problem with, with editorship, especially in, in America. It's just, it's just, it's just poor. And and the excuses I've heard in my entire writing life, and I'm tired of listening to them. We have submittable now, and I'm still listening to the same excuses as a writer, not just as an editor. I'm listening to, you know, we're really backed up. We got so much stuff. I go, I thought submittable is supposed to make your life easier and, and, and faster. Yet you still give me the same excuses from the 1980s when I was using mm-hmm. stamps and in the mail. I mean, come on. Right. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, you know, with with aerial chart, I mean, and soma to an extent, everything is is a labor of love. It's a one, two, three person affair, and you know, the 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 artist seeing a welcome website. You know, we are accepting. We're accepting submissions. Our reading period is open. Oh my gosh, it's like ants at a picnic. So you're going to get hundreds, hundreds of submissions every reading period and again the quality is going to be up down you know you can't predict what you're going to get how much is usable how how much isn't and if it's just you and another person let's say doing it well gosh forbid you get sick or gosh forbid the other person has a life crisis when you just stumble and then things backlog and it gets untenable you uh, so I don't know. I mean, I mean, there's no great answer other than let's hope people are really legitimately reading submissions. Let's hope they're legitimately trying their best to accept quality work, guide those that are near quality enough that um, they can become quality, and maybe even nudging those that are just starting out towards other markets that they might find more available, welcoming to them. I don't know what they do with, with their time, Mike, to be honest with you, because – the great majority of the academic journals are usually run by people that are in college. They oftentimes they're less than 25 years old, and I'm wondering. I'm like, listen, I'm 54. I have a full-time job. I had two small boys. Okay, I still make all the soccer matches. I run the magazine. I have my own uh, podcast. I have a publishing company, and I'm reading all these submissions. Yet I still can't respond to everybody. How can I do that? 
but you're somebody 25 years less than I am. What more can you have going on in your life? You're not married. You don't have kids. Uh, other than doing the magazine, you're partying with your friends, and you're going to college. I, I don't get it. So this is why I don't understand why they don't do this. It, to me, it, it could only be laziness is, is being the answer to cover most of this because I don't understand how I could fit this in, but they can't. Well, I teach a lot of those college kids, and I'll tell you, I've learned to, again, talking about tact and diplomacy, I can't, I can't assume laziness. I, what I can only assume in a student's role would be priorities. And they're even smart enough. Like, like if they'll come to me, hey, Professor G, I, I can't get this essay done on time. Can you give me an extension? And the syllabus says on the front page of it, there are no extensions. There's no <laughs> lakes. You get it in or, or you don't. So I point to the syllabus and I say, look, you know, we read this day one. You know, you knew the rule. It's in black and white here. Yeah, but I, well, yeah, but then I, yeah, but I have to do, and then I did this. I said, and you have priorities, right? Yes. And this essay was not a priority, was it? Well, no, but now it is. I said, okay, too late. You're taking a zero. And now you're moving on to different priorities. Let's hope the next essay will be a higher priority. And it almost always is. If the student's going to succeed, it almost always then is. And I've even learned, and I don't want to turn this into pedagogy, but I've even learned in my syllabus to build in 10 free points of extra credit for them to kind of learn that whoops, slip up like, oh, wow, Mike's really serious. I've got to get my priorities straight. Or I'm I'm maybe floating through a C if I'm lucky. If not, D, F, I don't draw maybe. And look, if, it, if it's a mother, I, I got an email the other day. You know, I'm a single mother. English is not my first language. I work full time. I go to school full time. You know, she, she was, I'm going to assume all that's correct. I'm going to assume the reason she said those things is because they're important to her. And I also assume she hit me up for sympathy by saying those things. Well, I could only respond with, I sympathize with you. However, I've already given you 10 free points to blow however you want to on your grade. You can still get an A and blow those 10 points. If this is the essay, you're going to blow. If this is the exam, you're going to blow or whatever. Uh, you know, there you go. Yeah, yeah, It's almost like a get-out-of-jail-free card. I understand your priorities are important, but every person's priorities are important to them, whether it's goofing around, whether it's playing xbox whether it's writing and reading poetry whether it's you know whatever so anyhow so back to the uh, mfa students who are editing the academic journals and their academic advisors look i can't fault them in the sense that it's frustrating i don't know them personally but in this i i do i i have not really written much new or submitted much new since the start of uh the new year because i recently moved and my priority is literally keep my office organized, going through boxes of packed stuff. Um, you, you know what I'm saying? So it's Yeah, like that's, moving sucks. I got it. Yeah. No doubt. So, so, so my priorities are right now teaching, uh, reading, you know, just to keep up on, on you know, articles in my field, articles in poetry. Uh, I just bought, almost because of uh, the nudge from the Strength to Be Human segment on Shirley Jackson, the lottery collection. So I started that today, you know, so just keeping into just literature myself. So those are priorities right now over me creating new poetry. Um, I've got a book coming out later in the summer. So that one's sort of like, okay, I'm done. That's good. I can promote that and, and kind of drift along a little more before the next book comes out. So, you know, what I'm saying, Mark, so it's, um, uh, 
I feel the frustration of the artist. I really do. But I also understand priorities are just different. Eh? Common sense is not so common. Well, my priority might not be yours. Her priority might not be his. And, uh, you know, we can look at people and kind of slap our heads and go, oh, that's not smart. And yet, to them, it's smart at the moment. I feel like I'm preaching. No, no, you're not. <laughs> it, 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 it is a perspective that we don't hear a lot on the show, a sort of, uh, you know, semi-defense of some of this behavior. Uh, if, if you're right, if it's not laziness, then I, I got to call it just, you know, poor time management, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. But I know, I know from a writing standpoint as a, as a writer and plenty of other writers tell me the same thing behind the scenes that w- whether this is fair or not, they expect more from the editors than they seem to get. Oh, 100%. 100%. You addressed that recently on one of your Strength to be Humans. I believe you might have even posted something on social media about it or someone I know that listened to the show or was part of the show posted it as well. And yeah, 100% correct. One reason I left the Blue Nib um, was I couldn't give it the amount of time I needed to be that tactful editor I spoke of earlier and the educating editor I spoke of. And the managing editor at the Blue Nibs, uh, you know, he just wants a, a gatekeeper, in effect. Mm-hmm. He doesn't he doesn't allow for a lot of time for the helping a poet reach his maturation of a piece. I learned a, a valuable goal as a writer and an editor at the same time with a very early acceptance of mine. Uh, it's in my book, Bloodline. Uh and it's a very short poem. It's only three very short stanzas. One stanza is only a, a one line long. Uh, it's called The Dreams of Beasts. Anyhow, that poem was about six stanzas long, twice as long as it exists now. And I sent it off for publication. The editor came back and said, well, look, here are my suggestions. If you want to follow my suggestions, yeah, we can publish this. If not, good luck. You know. And he meant that. He didn't just poo-poo it. You know, good luck. Um, but should you take my ideas of cutting this line, this stanza, this idea, shortening this line, you relineate it how you wish to, I'll accept it. Well, first, of course, I was like, well, how dare he? Okay, let's read this and look. And I read it, and I tried his idea. And you know what? It's punchier, it's shorter, it's more effective. A lot of people have responded to that poem effectively when I read it in public. And when I post it on social media, if it gets published again, you know, I, 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 like we all do, I kind of, hey, look what I just did. Look, you know, like, look what my kid did. My kid just won, you know, second place in the spelling bee. Well, we do that with our own poems. Hey, look what my poem did. It was just accepted in <laughs> Ariel Chart or ABC Journal or, you know, whatever. So anyhow, it always gets good feedback. It would not have seen the light of day without that radical cutting from that conscientious editor that took me and my poem by our collective hands and walked us down his path of reasoning. So artists need that. I mean, artists need the feedback that working alone in your bedroom doesn't give you. God love Emily Dickinson. We all accept, if not love, Emily Dickinson from middle school age, probably on up. I teach eight-year-olds over the summer poetry and creative writing. They look at Emily Dickinson 
as a, a writer role model and thankfully not as a human being role model because Emily had no editor. Emily had no sending it out to Aerial Chart, sending it out to Blue Nib, sending it out to Poetry Magazine. You know, Emily wrote these for Emily. Okay, fine. Bundled them together, put them under her bed, found only after her death. Great. Okay, wonderful. Well, we, we accept her now. How many decades later, as this immense, groundbreaking talent in the same breath as we embrace Walt Whitman? Okay, whether you like Dickinson or not, whether you like Whitman or not, isn't the debate. What, what I'm saying is, great, you have these cloistered writers like that, cloistered painters like that, even cloistered actors, Mark, believe it or not, like that working alone in their basement, in their bedroom, wherever. And then they can't understand why the rest of the world doesn't like their acting, doesn't like their painting, doesn't like their poetry. Well, hello, you're writing it for you. You're not writing it for the rest of the world. If you're not getting your artwork out to a critiquing group, at least, if not a class, if not editors, how can you expect to be accepted right out of the gate? And I hope I didn't anger any listener at that point. I, it's just... It, I, I, I doubt it because people at this point, we've been around the, on the air long enough, they, they, they expect people to, to be more candid, especially people who have mm -hmm. real, real experience. So if they're not going to take what you're saying seriously, they're not going to take anybody seriously. I can't think of a single poem of mine that hasn't benefited from critiquing. And I don't just mean me, you know, reading it, revising it, whatever. No, no, I mean critiquing from a, a third pair of eyes, a fifth pair of eyes, maybe a group of 20 different people. Uh, I mean, I, I, I have acquaintances in social media. Oh, I couldn't let anybody read my poetry. Oh, well, what are you, Emily? <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's not really something to aspire to. Let's just bury it in, 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 a, in, a, in a chest here until I die. Maybe the aliens yes. will find it, you know? Yes. That's pretty, much, that's pretty much it. I, I think for many people, though, when they have someone critique something, even if it's whatever they, they discover from that critique is true, oftentimes we, we have to find our own way to that truth. We can't just simply swallow it, and, and sometimes uh, folks are not comfortable. I had somebody that I gave some really good advice to, and, and the poem, incredibly enough, um, not only get it get picked up right away, it actually won a major award. But to this day, the poet tells me, I still don't feel attached to that poem. It feels like somebody else wrote it, which means that whatever advice you give sometimes to, to people, they have to find their own way to that advice. Because if they just grab it, you know, hook, line, and sinker, they might be like that person. They're always looking at that work as suspect now, an alien, regardless of how well it did, because... They didn't feel like themselves was fully in it. It, it seems like they were sharing it with, with somebody else. So we it's have to deep. always advise. We have to be careful with our advice sometimes because sometimes our advice can, can be more corrosive than we realize, regardless of how useful and truthful it might be. No, that, that, that's very deep. I, I go back to, to certain analogies very often in my writing and even in my thinking or whatever, and one of them happens to be food. I guess I just love food too much. And let's say I'm my wife you. is making a soup. All right. And she's the one that measured the ingredients and she's the one that set the burner the right way. And she's the one that put the water in and the stock and the meat and this and that. And all. OK, well, I walk by and I take a little taste of it. And to me, it's not salty enough. So I add 
I don't know, maybe another pinch or two of salt. Well, if my wife were to feel that that's no longer her soup, well, we're going to have some problems. <laughs> so I don't know to the extent that the writer you're speaking of um, allowed other advice to bend that piece. I have never had that experience, uh, so I can't. We can't judge anybody else's experience. Yeah, right? I, I'm not. Right? God knows, I'm not ridiculing them. But to be honest with no. you, it, it took me a while to even get my head around what they were trying to get their head around. Because I'm like, I don't know. Do I get? Do I feel pissed off and offended here, or am I trying to understand that maybe they're making an important point that there was some other way to to instruct them? But I kept saying to myself, I don't know which the hell way that is. I agree with you that maybe. Uh, relaying a certain truth to somebody they have to figure out how to get to it themselves and figure out how to incorporate that into however they you know they write and whatever their rituals are to write fine i I understand that uh, intellectually anyway but emotionally it's it's not an easy thing because it's like i don't know how to deliver the truth to you but then how i deliver it i don't know if there's a way for me to do it somewhere differently and you know you're trying to be a decent person god knows you're trying to be a decent editor but uh, it's an unusual experience, and it wouldn't surprise me if, if other folks have encountered that in maybe in a lesser form. But it is something to, uh, I think, to take, uh, take some uh, knowledge of. And I, I don't let it, like, stop me from being who I am or, or calling something as I see it. But I, I, I do try to figure out some way to remind the person that maybe you don't need to grab this right now. Maybe you need to figure out how it can, you know, seep into your system and maybe you can change into something that you feel is, is you and not part me. That's true. Uh, it, it's, it, I used the analogy maybe five, ten minutes ago about an editor guiding, you know, taking the writer by the hand and guiding the writer and, and the piece down a different path. Now, it doesn't mean a kidnapping. It doesn't mean, you know, we're beating this poem up to the point where it's a bloody pulp and you barely recognize it. No, it means... Okay, instead of just walking totally straight here, well, let's, let's look at the view over here to the left a little bit or to the right a little bit. You might see things in the details you, you, know, you might miss. So a gentle guiding hand, I can't see as changing a piece that much. There are, there are creators that feel that, that, that they have to be the only voice uh, to have ever you know, been in that story, acted that scene or, you know, written that poem or whatever it might be. Uh, my wife and I occasionally go out to paint at those, you know, sip and paint type places, you know, and we have the same model. You know, we have the same picture that we're modeling after, you know, one might be a, a sunset or one might be a lighthouse on a beach, whatever. Well, it is amazing, Mark, at the end of one of those things, how different my painting and my wife's look. And we're sitting right next to each other using the exact same colors and brushes. And then you get up and you're welcome at the end to walk around and look at everybody else's painting. And you will see stuff that is museum quality. I kid you not. With with cheap brushes, with cheap canvases, you're seeing stuff that you would buy. <laughs> you know, you'd be like, I want this over my couch. And then you see other stuff. You're like, whoa, zip and paint. You know, sip was the big letters. Paint here's the small letters for this fella or whatever. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that 20 people could do the exact same painting and all 20 will be different. And it's not all just skill. 
it's it's vision. It's a uh, desire to have a little more sand on the beach or a little more blue in the water or a little more bright red as opposed to a rusty red for the stripe in the um, uh, lighthouse or whatever it might be. And, you know, no two writers can write the same poem. Now, that's another thing as an editor, though. And you, I bet you've seen this with Ariel Chart. You're going to see poems that are very similar. How many poems about breakups can there be? How many poems about little doggies can there be? How many poems about sad old people can there be? Well, millions, it turns out. Uh, but how many unique ones? Well, dozens. It's kind of hard to, to really be unique because uh, uh, it, it's a universal cliche, first of all. And second of all, it's funny you bring this up because I had this uh, hilarious experience with an Egyptian writer last year. where And, and, and it's my fault. And I didn't express this to him because I didn't want to offend him. But he gave me this poem about a breakup with a girl. And he's telling me all these wonderful stuff he's doing in the desert and trying to find antiques and stuff and Egyptian, you know, mythology and all that. And then he writes a, a poem about a breakup with a girl. And I'm like, where the hell is the pyramids at? Where's some furrow action over here? You got a stupid girl. What are, what are you doing here? And, oh then, and, then, and then you forget, you forget that you know, he's a regular person like anybody else, regardless of where he's coming from. He's going to have one of those damn poems in there, whether you like it or not. <laughs> but oh, it, it almost felt disappointing because I was expecting something exotic. I get some crap that I can see down the block. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, again, maybe the editor has to nudge a person and say, tell me about the pharaoh. Tell me about the ruins. Tell me about the ocean of sand that you're in every day. Tell me what the sun feels like on your face. I, I try not to do that, and the mainly I try not to do that because I don't really have any right to tell this guy – yeah, just because you're from Egypt, I mean, I need some stuff about the pyramids. Mm. You know, I mean, he has to be who he is, and he's a modern guy in a modern society at the moment, dating a modern girl, having some modern problems. <laughs> no, you're absolutely they, right. They, no, you're absolutely they, right. They just, I, uh, they're just not that exciting, that's all. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're right, you're right. We all think, especially if you're a new artist, you all think that your um, uh, uh, vision, your creation is, is brand spanking new. Uh, you know, if you if you open any guidebook, how-to book on writing, I, I, I don't really read them on other art forms, so I can't say. Maybe for sculpting it's this way. Maybe for dancing it's this way. I don't know. But So anyway, the writing how-to books, they all have various different hints, instructions, how-to about writing in form or forming a paragraph or punctuation or this and that. But every single one says the exact same thing in chapter one. Read. Read some more. Read a lot. Go read even what you don't like. Read stuff outside of your comfort zone. If you want to write poetry, go ahead and read a technical journal. If you want to write poetry, go ahead and read the phone book. Go ahead and listen. And you're thinking, what the hell? What? I, I want to write poetry. I don't want to be reading the phone book. I don't have a technical journal. Huh? What? Because it teaches you to be a better human. It teaches you to learn new words, new concepts, new things that suddenly will, you mentioned seeping before, suddenly will seep into your psyche and out your pen. And where the hell did that come from? Well, it came from reading that phone book four months ago. It came from reading that technical manual last night before you went to bed. I mean, we don't read enough poetry, even if we write poetry, because we're in a way a bit selfish. Me, me, me. I want my ideas on paper. I want my breakup to be the one that counts most. And you think that yours is the most tragic uh, breakup. She was the best woman on earth ever, you know, whatever. No, not really. 
kids think that everything they go through is the first time anyone's gone through it. Kids, when they go through things, think it's the most fantastic experience of all time. Yeah. Wait till next week. Wait till next week. Wait till the week after. Well, you know, <laughs> you know we're all hurtling to the end of something. It, it, things have got to get better. And the closer we get to the end, let's hope, right? <laughs> so, so let's hope your Egyptian poet will send you better things in the future. And uh, yeah, no, I see where you're coming from, though. You have to be. You have to. I see. My role as a teacher almost makes me step in too often. Okay, give me this. Okay, change that. Okay, let's try it this way. Yeah, you know, I'm. A, I'm a very much a, a coaching teacher. So I'll get down into dirt with them. I'll get down and you know I'll show them how to like a coach would for wrestling. Show them how to do that wrestling hold. Well, as a poet, I'm going to be like, no, let's tear this stanza apart. Let's break it up. Let's write it as prose and then put it back as a poem. Uh, I got their heads spinning. You can tell their you know, their eyes are like all wide. Like, whoa, geez, dude! I, I just wrote a poem about a four leaf clover. Come on, well, I want to turn it into you know, yeah, you know, something poetry magazine must print. You know, <laughs> so I don't know that. So maybe I am a, a little too forceful uh, in my teaching, but uh, I, I enjoy it. My students seem to grow from it. So I haven't found too many writers that haven't taken something important. From, from from courses like yourself and, and from your type of experience, because I also deal with a lot of writers that, I, I guess for any given term, they're self-taught or, or, or ones that simply mm-hmm. have fallen into it later in life and, you know, and wind up having a, a knack for it, but they didn't really have anything formal or, or structured to start with. Mm-hmm. Well, but, that's my story. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's literally what happened to me. I, uh, if you would have said coming on five years now. So if you would have said six years ago, Mike, you're going to love writing poetry. You're even going to teach poetry. You're going to be doing a podcast with Mark Anthony Rossi. <laughs> you know, uh, no, me, no. Uh-uh. Because up to that point, to me, poetry was drudgery, 11th grade English class, an elective in college I just had to get through. Poetry was ACDC lyrics, Kiss lyrics, Rush lyrics, or whatever. You know, and Shakespeare that I couldn't stand at the time. You know, uh, black poetry, huh, what now? Well, I went through a severe lifestyle change due to a medical emergency, and over the course of months, found out, yeah, you know, poetry is a wonderful way to do self-therapy. Poetry is a wonderful way to get your thoughts out. I was urged by my wife to go ahead and submit it for publication, and lo and behold, other people must have identified with it because the title poem for Exposed was the second poem ever accepted of mine. The first one was a batch of little haikus and such that I don't know that the editor was really too critical or not. It's just, okay, three lines of five, seven, fives, and it talks about a heron. Okay, that's fine. We'll take it. <laughs> but but Exposed, you know, the poem itself, it was a real, you know, sometimes people wonder, well, how many drafts did that thing go through? I think Exposed went through like 12, 13. I mean, because it's literally, I was being pounded back into shape through surgeries and, and through operations. And that the poem came with me through all of that, uh, you know, work, all that hardship, all the physical therapy. So at any rate, that I saw success from my labors, both my emotional, psychological labors and my for real writing labors. Okay, I'm now a poet. Okay, a few a few years down the line. Okay, now I'm a poetry editor. Okay, a few more months down the line. Well, now I'm a poetry instructor. And you know, so 
I, you know, yeah, where I've, whereas I've learned, don't, don't ever feel you stop learning. You're smart. You're learning web, uh, you're learning podcasting all the time, Mark. You know, every, your shows always improve. You're, I admired your shows since month one. When you first started sending out notices about them, I can't remember the first one I listened to, but I thought, okay, there's my friend Mark, and Mark is addressing this in an entertaining yet educational way. And then you started having the guest houses with John Patrick Robbins. So I'm like, okay, now, hey, Mark's on a different level now. He's experimenting. And then you get to the themes, the monthly themes or the um, we're taking reader mail. Mark, you know, you're growing. You're growing as an artist and you're growing as a presenter. And that is just something beautiful to see at any age. Well, again, the poet working alone in his closet can't grow. There's no light in your closet. There's no other eyes. There's no other ears to hear you sing in the shower. Well, okay, but if you want real growth, other eyes have got to read it. Other ears have got to hear it. Other You've got to perform this stuff in some way. And if, if I mean going to do a poetry reading as a performance or if I mean sending it out and being open to criticism from critique groups or editors, whatever you want to call a performance, you've got to do it to grow. I don't know that there's any real growth without performance. But also, Mark, going back to my first point, you have to read the classics. You have to read what's come before. If you don't read... Um, classic poetry, if you don't read modern poetry, if you don't read poetry that has been written like last week, how do you know that what you're saying isn't indeed uh, old hat, boilerplate? Uh, I'm not claiming everything I've ever published or written is, is brand new whiz-bang original, but I'll tell you, uh, you know, if editors picked it up, they must think it's new. If my readers are responding to it in positive ways, it must be new to them. So I'd like to think that because I'm reading fairly extensively, and I admit not enough, it's like we don't we don't eat enough vegetables, we don't read enough other people's poetry, uh, we don't read out of our own comfort zones. I know I don't. Um, we're not growing well enough. We're not able to. Well, I, I, not only do I, I, I agree, I without trying to sound like too gloomy sometimes uh, the only way for us to grow is to is to have a, a measure of discomfort and pain because sometimes through those experiences is where actual growth comes from certainly yeah i mean that's your title strength to be human yeah it's just part of my it's part of my philosophy it's just about um not not relying on, on both science and religion to give you answers to the universe that maybe you could just use your own brain and try to figure out your own. And that, mm -hmm. that's really what the strength to be human about is it's just to, to be strong enough to you know, to make up your own mind and, and your own direction rather than just simply follow where everybody else is following. It, it, it's not to make somebody into a rebel because that's not really what the show no. or what my thinking is about. But it is about to be enough of an individual for you to stay I, I true to yourself and, and, and to be genuine and it's really hard to do that you know when 25 people have one idea and you just join them and become number 26 you know exactly. you're not really getting anywhere well and so with discomfort I mean that causes growth if we're sitting around all comfortable just watching Netflix how, where's growth all you're doing is expanding your Netflix uh, consumption so you know Plato quoting Socrates the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, 
you don't examine your life every five minutes. You don't examine your life every day in the shower. You examine your life at times of stress. You examine your life at major decision. Should I career jump? Should I ask this person to marry me? Should I move and downsize, you know, from a four-bedroom house to a two-bedroom condo like, like my wife and I did? Well, you know, you don't ask those questions every day, nor do you need to. But it's the discomfiture of debate. It's the discomfiture of, yeah, you know, my life does need a change. And then the strength to be human part comes in with the idea of, okay, how then do I become better? What steps can I take? And you're right. If all you do is pray to God for it, I am not disparaging religion or Christianity or God. But if all we do is pray to God, we're giving up our real ability to lead ourselves, not to be led. And likewise, if we give it all up to medicines, technology, you know, uh, some kind of AI, <laughs> where are we going to be then with those decisions? So now we've got to be strong through discomfiture to examine ourselves, examine our art, change and grow. Yeah, you're never going to grow as a slave. It's just that simple. you got to mm-hmm. gotta break free and, and do your own thing. I, I want to be the best slave ever. Well, okay. <laughs> Put your damn head in the sand and you know, tighten your chains, pal. We got, we, got, we got a lot of folks like that. So it's, it's sort of my own my own preaching, especially on the show, to um, to do whatever we can to um, try to expose something new. If it's not about ourselves, maybe about the world. And, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, we have a... A duty, not twenty four seven, but you know we do have a duty in general, you know, to sometimes I- inflict the comfortable, you know. Oh yes, yeah, certainly, certainly. I mean, one thing in communications that I teach, and this is a hard one. I uh, there's, there's a lot of preaching, and then when it comes to practice, it's like, oh, oh boy, I got to do this too. Don't be afraid to debate. You know, if your partner, if your friend, if your boss or your coworker, whatever, is doing something you're not pleased with. Number one, figure out why it's displeasing to you. And then number two, if it's not, if you're not the source of that displeasure, if it's something they're doing, if it's something they're saying, if it's some way they're being, some way they're behaving, well, you know, address them in a mature way to get the satisfaction you both deserve. And that will sometimes uh, very often help the situation along. If all we do is sit and yes, dear, Yes, dear. Uh-huh. Yes, boss. Yes, boss. We are those slaves. We we are wearing spiritual chains, and we deserve any um, doldrum that we find ourselves in. So you sometimes need the gadfly. You sometimes need that grit that forms the pearl. We, so, I, I think we do, and, and I maybe more than others, but I, I really expect that writers should try to you know to try to grab that and, and do that, if, if not all the time, at least enough to. To make sure that they're still alive and, and, and they're doing something useful in writing, other than just you know, another another poem about a you know flower or another another poem about the cloud that looks like Jesus. Those mm-hmm. are those are all cool. Okay, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I can never get enough of those. But mm-hmm. um, we we have to be able to say something more, you know, about uh, you know people being abused right now. I had someone mm-hmm. write a poem about elder abuse. So hey, that that's a that's a useful topic. That's that's good. Mm-hmm. That's that's important. And if you can make it. Something artistic and something that you know that has some relevance, you know, maybe a little bit of grit to it. Great, things like yeah. that. We should, we should try to be doing it as much as as possible because we already have an entertainment complex that doesn't want to tackle a lot of things. You know, yeah. they just want to be politically correct and, and wrap everything up in a bow, and that's not how life works. So, uh, writers, uh, we we should expect them more to be more daring than they are. 
I think so. I think so. You know, you know the um, uh, artist Edward Hopper, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So Hopper, I'm taken by so many of his paintings for many different reasons, but I think the first thing that ever attracted me to his paintings was almost the desolation and yet normalcy of that desolation in his human figures. You know, the famous one of, of the uh, diner where those people are sitting at the counter and they're all kind of looking into their coffee as opposed to looking at each other. I think one gentleman might be reading a newspaper. Well, that speaks of the reality of what Hopper uh, apparently saw or at least envisioned in his mind, if not saw it in real life. But it also speaks to sort of this desolate human nature of what we really are alone at the end of, the, of, every, of every day. And maybe my favorite Hopper painting shows a couple in a room, and he is facing one direction, she is facing another. He is reading his newspaper. It's clear he, I believe, came home from work the way he's dressed. She's been home all day based on the period of, you know, when Hopper painted it. And she's just there idly looking at the piano and, and I think, pushing like a key down. I mean, what does that say about that marriage? What does that say about even that ability for them not to be friends or friendly? So if the artist, you know, so what's a popular painting? The popular painting is of a rainbow, of a sunshine, of a landscape. Well, here Hopper was giving people this gut punch of, look at us, look at who we are. And, uh, you know, take a few steps back and look at yourself, too. What's your life really like? So I, 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 to me, respect that type of art so damn much that I can only hope I can emulate it in some way. I look for other writers that do that. And Robert Frost, I, I, you know, you read Robert Frost at, at, at the base level. And okay, oh, I can see that I am a contaminator. Oh, yeah, that's blank verse. I got that. Oh, yeah. Oh, isn't that pretty? He's talking about trees and deer and, and snow. No, 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 no. Robert Frost is talking about humans and the way we act and the way we are mean to each other and the way we can grudgingly love each other. Uh, uh, I, I, I mean, every poem needs some sort of human element. I've written plenty of nature poems most of which I'm not fond of, but the ones that I think work have at least a vaguely human element. If it's, not, if it's even just the reader getting into the poem, she, when she reads it, is the human in that poem then watching the snowfall or looking at the wind through grass or whatever it might be. And unless we can have that, we just have sterile... You know, you know words right. that, that really... You know. We have to we have to figure out how to do it in the artistic matter because you think about Hopper, he's talking about in his paintings really apathy in, in American society, but he's doing it in a way that you can kind of like join in with him because he hasn't done it to alienate you, even though it's very alienating. And and and, and Frost, I mean, this is this is a guy writing mostly about personal responsibility and and, and the the consequences of our choices. And, yes. But he he does it in, in in such a beautiful manner that you don't feel like you're being lectured to, even though Frost in many ways is hitting you over the head with a stick. You think he's bringing oh, yeah. you into the forest to talk about the deer? No, he's beating you over the head with the damn branches. Yeah, but but yeah, I, you're you're 100 accurate. I've yet to really dig into a good biography about Frost, but the few things I've read about him in person, he preached. 
I mean, you think I preach? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, Frost did beat people over the head. I mean, sometimes uh, almost literally, he and Wallace Stevens had famous arguments. I found out, and and they're famously different writers. And but at any rate, so with Frost, yeah, I mean that he can be taught in high school, and again, the doldrums of of the eleventh grade, you know, poetry class. You know, maybe one, two of the real go-getters in there are like, oh, yeah, I get I get the meaning of mending a wall. Oh, I get the meaning of the road not taken. Oh, yeah. And the teacher knows she reached those those two or three students, but the rest of us are like, oh, please, let this be over with. <laughs> Until you can look at Frost on a different level. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, talk about personal responsibility and talk about what we do to each other, what we do with each other, and what we ultimately then uh, expend upon each other and ourselves by doing so. Your home burial. Oh, oh. <laughs> you know, you talk about the grit in that poem. I mean, you read that thing, and if you don't go away from after reading home burial, a different, if not reader, a different writer. I think I think I think he's overlooked, believe it or not, because he's considered such an icon, such an academic, established figure that people take him for granted, and they don't really go deeper in, into Frost. And in fact, I know some people that read Frost, and they're like, they think it's all you know, snow bunnies and, and, and freaking chocolate mm -hmm. milk. You know, it's like, no, mm -hmm. what the hell are you talking about here? Mm -hmm. This guy, this guy's pretty radical. He's pretty rough. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yep, yeah. Maybe he had the um, unfortunate blessing of being so popular and populist. I mean, you, you have Rod McEwen in the, I guess, late 60s, early 70s, who is seen as sort of the hallmark writer. My grandmother had all of his books. And, and you know, so going back to, ugh, yuck, poetry, whatever. I'd pick them up and I'd open them. Oh, there's pretty pictures inside. Oh, okay. And you read this about the beach or you read this about my love for you, my best friend, or whatever it might be. And okay, they were just nice poems. You know, just like how, how sugar pop music is nice music, mm -hmm. like the Archies yeah. or the Rascals or whatever. That's nice. Okay, well, it was, it was parental approved. That's my grandmother had it. Everything was parental approved for my grandmother, God rest her soul. And yet Robert Frost fell into that too. You know, he did the Kennedy inauguration and... Um, he was, uh, at that late era of his life, just seen as America's poet. Yeah, it's hard It's well, hard that, not to grab some of that celebrity when when you get pushed into it. Because, you know, Maya Angelou did that wonderful poem about mm. with, with, with Clinton. And I say wonderful because it is a wonderful poem, but it's still nothing compared to some of her earlier work. Indeed, indeed, yeah. yeah. It's a decent job, but it's nothing compared to it because I don't know if they get... So so universal and, and and get pressurized in a, in a commercialized kind of way or something, but yeah, you're, you're right that that does happen. I don't know if that's what helped, you know, tarnish his image in terms of him not being as serious as others, but um, I think that uh, one day, if not through one of those like Netflix bio films or just maybe, mm. maybe through just some kind of reexamination, I think we can get something more deeper out of, out of Frost than, than what we've gotten so far. Well, you know, too, and this might this might anger a couple, well, many of your listeners. Um, <laughs> so Bukowski, you know, Charles Bukowski, he's risen to the, to the status of a saint. I'll ask my teenage and older students, okay, list, list for me the three most important poets right now in your life. You know, in other words, ones that you have read that have changed 
your viewpoints of poetry or art or what you could be as a writer, Mark Bukowski is on every list. Yeah. I sound fatigued when I say that, I know, but and I do not exaggerate both my fatigue and the word every. Every young writer has a Bukowski moment, and it may last years, you know. And I pick up his things, and I, I've got him in some compilations. I, I own no one Bukowski book. And if any of your uh, listeners want to send me one, great. I'll gladly own it. But I, I don't know that I want to buy one myself because I, I pick them up and I read them. And they are very surface. So Bukowski wrote tens of thousands of poems reportedly, and he wrote almost all of them reportedly drunk. Fine. I've got a lot of ramblings and a lot of notebook pages, no one of which I would say is publishable. And yet, uh, you know, Bukowski's lauded for this. And, and, and I'm, I'm amazed myself. But the, the funny thing about that guy is, is that I honestly believe that he was a good writer. And I've read some of his nonfiction pieces. It's obvious that he understood what was going on, mm-hmm. whether he could control a his demons or he just didn't give a damn anymore when he started doing something creative but when the, when the guy wrote nonfiction, even even uh, one of his his novels i mean it's 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 good decent writing i mean I'm, i wonder about some of his poems and of course you know he had such a a, a chaotic you know uh, personal life and of course mm. you know you add the whole hollywood celebrity and the legends to the films and everything it definitely skews you know how how a person is looked upon I mean, I think it's safe to say, if I'm reading in between the lines of what you're saying, um, he might have been considered better than he was, you know. But and, and that, I, I believe it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that might be that really might be the case. But uh, I definitely don't think he was somebody that sucked, and I definitely don't think he's no. not somebody we should be looking at and and trying to learn something from. But um, you have to wonder how many years he squandered with the kind of life he led, and how okay. how. I don't know. Did he write these these essays when he wasn't drunk? Because he sounded pretty damn intelligent. And then you read a poem of his and go, "What the hell is that?" Yeah, I I, I haven't read his nonfiction, and I really am not bashing that. Uh, the poetry is the one. And to be honest, and I, and I had to, as you were speaking, I was thinking I want to kind of self correct without sounding like I'm backpedaling too much. Early Bukowski has layers to it. His writing in the fifties and I think early sixties. That had meat for me. Later, Bukowski, the fame hit maybe more alcoholism or whatever, whatever demons, you know, as you said earlier, hit. So anyhow, that stuff that a lot of my students seem to thrive on is, is to my read, very surface. And, and, you know, whether you like it or not, okay, you look at the surface and you go, okay, boom, what else is there? You know, you look at pond water. You are really looking at your own reflection. You're looking at the reflection of the sun or whatever else is around you, and you're also looking for tadpoles in that pond or frogs in that pond or fish in that pond or the bottom of the pond. You can't do that with surface writing. You can't do that with surface art. So if I'm correct, and maybe I'm not, but, you know, in my opinion, you know, so later Bukowski, it's just surface it's just he's writing, he's firing off these these first draft you know, little epiphanies or whatever, and okay, a frost, uh, a plath, uh, who who also comes in probably second with my students, plath, um, 
Terrence Hayes today, Patricia Smith today, are writing things where you read them on the surface and you can, you know, they're hot irons. You're, you know, you're reading them, whoa, once the heat has worn off you, though, and you go back in and you can either play, okay, what words rhyme? Okay, what? where's the cadence? Okay, what's the hidden meaning? If you want to start looking at the technique, that's a separate thing once the heat is worn off. But even then, a third layer of, oh, she's bringing in some illusion here. Or, oh, I see the wordplay he put in here. And you can't usually read that on the first read. Or at least I can't. I, you know, I, I tend to read, and, and if something doesn't hit me, right away as, oh, this is important. I got to go back to it and I'll, I'll highlight it or, or, or earmark it or put a post note on it so I remember to go back and read it. If something just passes by, it passes by. And in all fairness, I'll try and go back to that maybe a year or two later once I have learned more about formal poetry or about looking for hidden clues or whatever in, in this sort of type of poem. Or even looking at that form, if it, if it's a ballad and not used to reading ballads or whatever. But anyhow, so what I'm getting at is, so let's say I read a Sylvia Plath, and at first it's like, damn, oh, oh, look at her, she's on fire. I then have to put that down while it's still on fire, to be then critical on a second, third, fourth pass through, and see all of the artistry, and look beneath the surface, and look at wordplay, or look at why she chose certain things, why she chose to omit certain things. We're losing a lot of draft poetry. And, and I, this is sort of skewed. I'm getting a little off topic, I realize. Um, so we can go back and look at drafts that Plath did. We can go back and look at drafts Frost did. We can go back and look at drafts Ginsburg did or whoever. Anyone who wrote in longhand, literally typed it up in manuscript form, edited manuscripts, looked at galley proofs, came back. Well, we do not have that anymore. We might have saved versions in our hard drives. I have some scribbled scraps here and there, but I tell you what, I write faster and better, I think, on my PC. So if I get a, a, a you know, a hot poem that wants to get on out and I'm logged in having to do student emails or blowing some time on fa Facebook and it's like, oh, well, I got this idea. Oh, I'm damn well typing it. I'm not going to look for a pen with my yeah. tablet. Mm -hmm. What page is it? So anyhow, what I'm getting at is we're actually losing the ability for future generations to go back and look at the little draft changes Mark Anthony Rossi did on this poem about Pompeii or that Mike Griffith did on his poem about, you know, his drunk mother-in-law or whatever. Um we might be able to go back, back in to look at draft one, two, three, four, but we can't see the scribble out. We can't see the logical thinking behind drawing an arrow and well, why should line three now become line one? Or, you know, so we're losing a bit of that artistry as well. We're losing a bit of the logic of the author's ability to create. You don't, you don't have drafts of paintings usually. You don't have drafts of sculptures usually. You might have snapshots of sketches and how it came along. But you look at, you know, a sculpture. You're looking at the thing itself. Well, the beauty of writing is I would think we could look deeper. We could look at not, oh, why, why does that guy's bicep look so small on this, paint, on this painting or this sculpture? 
oh, why did Mike only use two words in line three and five words in every other line? Uh, you know, writing allows for that. And if we go back, maybe look at my drafts, we can detect that, oh, all lines had five words, but Mike decided to cut out three of line two's words. Well, how come? How does that strengthen the poem? What does the omission really mean here? Now, that's what I mean about the surface. I've, I, again, and I'm just kind of half talking off my shoulder here. No, I really, I really I, like the point you're making, mainly because it's, it's true. We, we, we're losing, we're using millions of these drafts and what we could have learned from them. But I also like it because I don't think anyone's ever brought that point up ever on this show. In fact, when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, damn, this is pretty interesting because I just, I never thought about it myself. I mean, when you're saying it now, I'm like, hey, you're right. I never really thought about it like that at all. Um, Robert Lowell, uh, uh, you know, he was famous for rights, rewrites. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Bishop in her um, uh, soliloquy to him, um, I'm sorry, epitaph to him when he died. Uh, yeah, she basically called him basically, uh, and I'm going to get it wrong. I don't have the poem in front of me, but basically, you know, you can revise no more. Basically, you're dead. You know, you can't come back to your pieces three books later and still scribble through and say, oh, no, this is the definitive version. You know, Marianne Moore was famous for chopping her poetry up even after it was published. Um, uh, so, you know, we're, we, we have these wonderful artists, you know, Frost. How many drafts did he do of The Road Not Taken? Well, it turns out dozens. How many drafts did Allen Ginsberg do of Howell? Well, it turns out dozens. And, and by drafts, I don't mean, you know, like we have on computers. I mean these handwritten sheaths of paper stapled together, rubber banded together. I mean, scribbled through T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. Oh, I, re I, re I, remember, I remember when there was a, a biographer that finally tried to set the, the record straight on Edgar Allan Poe after getting through all that crap from his enemies, screwing around and making him seem like an alcoholic, drug addict loser. When he actually went through all the drafts that were saved, it was evident to him that there's no way this guy could be an alcoholic and writing his stuff because it was obvious from his drafts where he was going and where the finished product was. I think I read that somewhere. Yeah. I think I read that, yes. And I, I know over it in... Um, I think it's the one in North Carolina um, of one of the museums for him. They actually have some of those. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so there's a few of them they have. I know the one in Baltimore has a few, but the, I know the one in, in North Carolina has a has definitely a, a number of them that you can actually uh, request to, to check out. And you can see all, all that all that he was doing. You know, and I, I, I joke all the time that um, you might be able to uh, write a drunk like a Bukowski, but you really can't draft and edit uh, somebody that you have to be sober because it, you're, you're, you're more calculating than ever. And you can't do that being a, you know, being a wild, you know, wasteland kind of guy out there. You know, you could write right up from the from the from the get go, and, and and maybe do some minute changes, but not not these long um, handwritten drafts of of the short stories of Edgar Allan Poe. It was obvious that you know he had a a plan and, and he kept working at it until he was able to execute it. That that's the mind of a, of a professional, and it's definitely a mind of somebody who's not a drunk. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I mean. Um... In fiction, of course, are you a plotzer or are you a pantser? Well, there's one thing to be said for either approach. Writing 
from a strict outline where you have the plot all, you know, pre-ordained, or are you going to write from the seat of your pants? Well, both have strengths. However, the pantser must come back with a final draft, a, a, a first draft, and then turn it into a final draft. Whereas the plotter will probably find she has made less mistakes than the pantser along the way of, ooh, I left out this character in chapter 12, and, and he really should have came up at this point, or whatever it might be. Well, the same thing with a poet. If you're just, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're just writing from the gut, well, you might get a beautiful, uh, you know, emotional thrust to your piece. But until you temper that piece with your rational mind, it's it's really going to be gobbledygook, maybe. It's, it's really just going to be treacle. It, it's it's going to... It's going to be the, this unformed, you know, you know, piece. It's the ingredients of the stew. It's not the whole stew yet. You know, you, you've got to temper it and turn it into what becomes the final edible product, one poem, the final readable product that is universally relatable to every reader, not just you. I wonder for the future how writers get judged because so much of the traditional course of, of examining a person had disappeared now with, with the technology we have. We, we're no longer doing any real correspondence. Uh, who the hell is saving all their emails? So there's only so much of that can be really examined. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the photography is digital, so you're losing a whole lot of uh, you know, uh, journals and, 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 and scratchbooks and all this other stuff that you don't have anymore. Um, so much is not being printed. It's it's just more electronic. So in the future, when you're judging a, a writer, you're, you're just not going to have as many avenues to make decisions on. Well, unfortunately, I think the future's uh, you know turning into Twitter. I think it's turning into Instagram. And will Frost Dickinson? I mean, Dickinson is almost made for the Internet age. Dickinson almost fits within Instagram. And so many uh, Instagram posters use her her things. It, you know, uh, it's ridiculous in a way. It's, it's almost like we're hmm. we're putting her in a Diet Pepsi commercial, like they did. Uh, you know, uh, Gene Kelly dancing around. How many years after his death? And Marilyn Monroe is now selling what is it? Jewelry and luggage. <laughs> yeah, you know, how many decades after her death? Because we can still manipulate the you know the old imagery. Well. Fast forward 50 years from now, and, and will we be reading classic poetry? Will we be reading Shakespeare? Will we be reading Mark Anthony Rossi? You know, will we be listening to podcasts of any real length? Podcasts might survive because they're actually huge money makers. However, poetry not being a great money maker, uh, you know, we're going to get the uh, spoken word artists, and and I'm glad. Spoken word exists, whereas I don't do it. I can damn well appreciate the talent that goes into that. And we're also going to get the Twitterverse. We're going to get the Instagram. And we're going to be judged like we're judging uh, Rupi Kaur, you know, the, the milk and honey type poetry, the sun and her stars type of poetry. Uh, you, you know, one of those poets can piece together five words and it gets 100,000 hits in a week, what poetry book has sold 100,000 copies recently besides one of these Instagram poets? None. No, that's, that's it's true. Um, you know, so I, I, I do 
hate being doom and gloom as far as how tech is changing us. I mean, I teach it. I, I, I teach technological change. And I witness it with my students. I witness it, they as usually younger people than I, and their technological diets, their media diets, their both production and, production and consumption of media is so radically different than even the last generations and my generation. You know, ours, we, you know, we're the same age, so we share, you know, we thought pinball machines were whiz-bang, and then we thought Pac-Man was whiz-bang. Well, oh, my, my heavens, you know, that's <laughs> dinosaur stuff. Come yeah. on. That, 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 that Jaws, you know, Bruce, the rubber shark and foam shark was so realistic. Well, now, you know, my students watch out in film classes like, ah, oh, come on. This is nothing. I, yeah, it's, you know. I tell my kids as they laugh, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, with CGI and everything, and even video games look more realistic than the movies we watched in the 70s and 80s. So anyhow, how will poetry and, and, and artistry be judged in the future? I, I think it's going to be smaller and smaller doses of it. And it's just, uh, how, do, how do we judge spoken word? We, we judge that differently than written poetry. How do we judge Instagram? Well, we judge it by the number of likes, not so much the number of sales. Uh, you know, it's going to be judged on different platforms in different ways. Well, I'm, I'm definitely somebody that's been skeptical about technology in, in many ways. But ultimately, I'm not afraid of it. What worries me more than anything else is, to me, the, the, the culture. If the culture continues to take this uh, uber selfish mode to doing things then the the future of poetry is that it'll still have a future but you have to wonder about what the content is going to be is it going to just be more techno babble crap and not anything real about humans and and our challenges and, and our joys and our loves and and all of that because if the culture continues to sink it really won't matter how much technology is, is taken over but if the culture can figure out a way to find some of the better better i guess you could say angels of of our nature we can overcome technology then with that because the human spirit is stronger but we have to make sure that it, it stays stronger and it doesn't become second place to technology that's really what the concern is is that you know we stay the master of these things and not the other way around yeah no exactly and and one thing we teach in the mass media course is that technology has always outstripped our ability to know how to use the tech. In other words, so yes, dynamite was invented to help mining. It didn't take us long to light that fuse and throw that at our enemy. Whoops, we didn't mean that. Well, that's how we're going to use it now. You know, um, we all love Amazon, and yet we know that in effect, black marketeers have kind of tried to profit off of it with this uh, coronavirus. $30 hand sanitizer when it really was 30 cents. Yeah, unbelievable. At the Walmart that you just bought it at. Mm -hmm. Well, Amazon being the world's marketplace allowed that to happen. Now, Amazon did clamp down to a degree on that sort of black marketing. And uh, I do indeed have no sympathy for people that try to make uh, you know, under the guise of capitalism, you know, greed and attractive thing. Well, I'm just doing it to help my kids. No, you're not doing it to help your kids. You're doing it to line your pockets. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to help your kids, you would walk around and teach your kids to help your neighbors get better 
you know, here, you need a hand sanitizer, Mr. Jones. Here, you need a hand sanitizer, Mrs. Lopez. We got them for you. Here you are. It's a gift. That's teaching your kids to be better. So um, I don't know. I mean, I think so. So if we go to. Uh, so spoken word, my first exposure to it was about three, four years ago at uh, University of Connecticut. I just have to be waiting in a Barnes and Nobles. And I start hearing this applause, and I'm like, oh, is that all for me? And, of course, it wasn't all for me. <laughs> I took a few steps over, and they had this sort of stage set up, and people were doing spoken word. And then I was asked to become a judge of it. And I'm like, what? I'm like the oldest guy in the room. What? No, we need another judge. Come on. You just, you just you hold up the whiteboard. You write 1 to 10. And I'm thinking, okay, the old guy here is going to be judging these 19, 20 year old people who are talking about their lives. Oh boy, I'm going to be giving like twos and threes. Uh oh. It's like the gong show, right? <laughs> oh no, Mark, I was entranced. I, you know, they're talking about their hardships, they're talking about their sexuality, and not so much to flaunt things, but that they're coming to terms with it because they recognize that whereas, yes, they're adult, they are young adults, they don't have all the answers. And they're talking about uh, their neighborhoods. And they're talking about white privilege versus brown privilege versus yellow privilege versus, the, you know, because they're at University of Connecticut. They're all privileged to an extent. You know, they're, they're at a school which is almost Ivy League with its reputation. So they all know tongue-in-cheek, oh, yeah, you know, I, I'm from the hood, wink, wink. You know, you're from the hood of, <laughs> you know, suburban Connecticut. Come on, let's be realistic. So they were actually saying these things in their spoken word in such a rhythmic, passionate way with almost no use of scripts or notes. I was given tens. I was given nines. I was like Paula Abdul on America. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, oh, you're great. Oh, you're so oh, you're wonderful. Oh, yeah. And I was just I had to stop some of these young people during the breaks. And I just had to just conclude congratulate them and I just oh my goodness so the scope of what they were talking about was impressive however and here's the whoops okay there's got to be a twist because Mike is a teacher and Mike is an old man here the twist becomes they were all pointing inside my life my hardship my mother my lesbianism my homosexuality my car my flat wallet, my, 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 The most popular word in the Western language, in Western cultures, is some variation of I, me, mine. We use that word more often than any other word in a given day in our conversations. I go back and I reread my emails I'm sending. I would like to thank you. I think what you did was great. I very much appreciate it. Jesus. Okay, well, on the one hand, everything I said is true. But why am I the front piece of that sentence? We reflect so much on ourselves. We live in our own little bubble. This gets me then to the Twitterverse, the Instagram. Yes, they have to be universal to an extent, or else they wouldn't get the 10,000 smiley face likes, thumbs up, whatevers. And yet, they are so inward-facing about breakups, about the cloud I just saw, about the pizza I just ate, about the whatever. My feelings about. 
are they also your feelings as a secondary function of art? However, going back to my analogy of that pond that we look in the surface of, Instagram poetry, Twitter poetry, tends to be very, very shallow as a pond. So you're seeing yourself and the bottom right away in the same view. That's all the depth that's there. Now, slam poetry, that's different. That, that has depths and layers, and whereas it usually faces inward. And when it doesn't, it's an attack on the other. It can, it can become an attack against a gender, a race, uh, a socioeconomic class. It's always alienation. If it's not embracing the self, it attacks the other. From the slams I've attended and from the spoken word performances I've seen in person, online, whatever. So anyway, the Instagram poetry seems more just inward focused in a very shallow way. So I think you ought to, I think you ought to title this Mike Griffith Preaches. Can we get an amen? No, not, not, not at all. It's, it's good to have these topics on the show. And, and, it, and it really is good to, for folks to hear about this because what Mike is really saying, in my opinion, is uh, these still have some validity. Uh, but they also have a lot of a lot of downside to them. I, I mean, the perfect example is you could take just about any spoken word performance because that's really what it is. It's more performance than spoken word. And just try yeah. just try to put that without any editing. Just try to put that on paper, and you find that it's going to fail almost anyone's test on being published because it it, it tends to be less structured. It, it tends to be less considered because it is more more fire than than it is in any kind of a real uh, real fiber to it and and that's that's one of its major downsides so it has you know it has a spark of life but unfortunately it's just a spark it's it's nothing more than that it's still useful you know if you put it in the whole gamut of creative things to to get your juices flowing nothing wrong with that yeah. but i cannot believe how many people will send me this stuff straight from yeah i just performed this last night mark I'm like, God bless, but this is this is not even going to work for in Word One, let alone the rest of the stuff. What is this? But when they speak it, it sounded great. Yeah, it probably sounded great when they spoke it, though. Well, it's like the Stones, you know, Rolling Stones, or you know, any band I pick. But like, "Start Me Up" is is just a pop song. I mean, it's just it's rock, it's pop, you know, whatever. I used to play that in a high school teenage band. So I, I always follow along with the bass. I was a bass player, but also I would sing back up. And every time I hear it, you know, I've got to crank it up, sing along with it, play air bass along with it, whatever. That's fine. But the lyrics are just garbage. Yeah. And, and they're meant to be because it's a pop song. They just they needed to literally fill two tracks to make a 10-track album. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so they whipped that one out. And they whipped out... Um, Oh, I forget the other one. Neighbors, I think it's called, or, or a different one on on Tattoo You. But anyhow, uh, oh, Hang Fire, I think it was. But anyway, so you know the lyrics are there. They're they're Mick lyrics, and they're yeah. fine for what they are. As the song, it's incredible. As written out, wait, what? Yeah, yeah exactly. He, he ends the <laughs> you know, song with "You Make a Dead Man Come." Yeah, that's really brilliant, there, Mick. Thanks. Well, yeah, yeah, it's whoops, it's, it's bad boy Mick. But, but your point is, is exactly right with the spoken word. It, it's usually just so dead on the paper. Live, it's incredible. 
on the paper, it's, it's almost meaningless, like some song lyrics can be. And I even look at sometimes uh, anthologies of of spoken word. When it first came on the scene, uh, late 80s, early 90s, they thought this was going to save poetry, just like we think Instagram poetry is going to save poetry. Because, yeah, well, poetry is always on a deathbed. Yeah. You know, it's always been on a deathbed I, for how many generations? I, I, I laugh every time I hear that, yeah. Oh, I know. It's, it's like how science fiction is dead. Well, you know, not so much. But we, so, so we have these anthologies of the best of spoken word, 1996 or whatever. Well, you look at it and it's just, it's, it's just blah. You hear it and it is incredible. But to read it, it just, it, it becomes so sing-song or it just becomes so disjointed as you read it. Twitter and Instagram you read that out loud, it takes you five seconds, and where can the depth be? It, it just it doesn't exist. And yet it's got so much uh, of a following, which is okay. McDonald's has a wonderful following, billions and billions served. But if all you eat is McDonald's, you know, you're going to die all the sooner. You're not getting really good food. And I would question your judgment yeah i would question the, the nutritive uh the nutritional value of what you're ingesting hey i like i like a big mac as next as the next guy I, well one a month is enough i i <laughs> I, li I like these different incarnations of poetry because at least it still keeps it uh, keeps it alive in some other different form out there over the last like five six de seven decades so i'm all right with it but I know not to take it too much more seriously than that because the poetry is never really in danger of going away. And, and the traditional basic 16-line yeah. poem that maybe some middle-aged mom writes and sends it into aerial chart really is what poetry is all about. It's nothing more yeah. than just a, a sincere effort to get across a thought. And I got and I got to tell you, I, I, I want to make two quick points. And and. I'm not blowing smoke here, Mark. Ariel Chart, and I really hope, if, if anybody's still hanging on listening at this point, if you are a writer, please do yourself a favor. Look for Ariel Chart. Google it. Mark, maybe at the end you want to give him the four-wheel link here. But, uh, I mean, Ariel Chart not only is a reader, is just a treat because Mark matches the stories, the poetry with beautiful images, number one. But number two, Mark is open to talent. I, I mean, you've got a sensitive ear, a sensitive eye. You don't take trash. You're looking for art, but the art is approachable art. It's not art that you need an MFA to even think, oh, I can understand this or oh, I, no. It is humanist art. It is, and I used the terms popular and populist before. It is popular art in the sense that you will enjoy it when you read it. It is populist in the sense that the general reader, oh, I don't read a lot of poetry. You know, go to Ariel Chart and read three of them. You've just read three good poems, and they're and, and, and at least one of them is going to touch you. At least one, if not all three, is going to touch you. I guarantee you that. So number one, the, the point I want to make is, Mark, Ariel Chart is a true, true friend to poetry to art, visual art, with the pictures you, you match the poems and stories with, and to fiction. So readers and writers really need to take advantage of Ariel Chart more often. And then number two, so I mentioned the idea of the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined poem is not worth reading. 
I mean, if you can just get through it with one read and go, yeah, well, okay, that's nice, and move on to the next poem, that really wasn't worth your consumption. If you can't go back and dig more out of that poem, it's, it's, it's really literally surface. If you know, though, you've got to dig for another read, if you've got to go in, in right away for a second read or maybe a, a read, like I mentioned earlier in the program, later down the road, when you think you have a more critical eye to do so, then the poem is worth reading. Then the poem really has a place in your life. But, you know, if you can just read it and, and, and you're done with it, it's like a comic book. It's it's like a newspaper article and just you go to the next page. Okay, I just read page B3. Where's page B4? Okay, where's page B5? Okay, you know, poetry and art should not be that way. Well, well, Fiction should not be that way. Well, well said, uh, Mike. You, you mentioned earlier on that uh, you, you had a project that you were going to be releasing in the summertime. Can you tell us just a little bit about it without, you know, spoiling too much of it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, no spoil. I mean, I, I want to give as much of it as I can. Oh, okay. It's, it's a book of love poetry. And don't, right now, don't turn, don't push pause. Don't, don't take your earbuds off, folks. It's not typical Hallmark love poetry. It's uh, a group of love poems that follow an arc. I, again, I'm, I'm a how-to book junkie. And there's so much how-to about writing poetry chapbooks out there that say, well, you know, your chapbook ought to have an overarching theme. Well, Bloodline, my second one, did not. The, the, the Blue Nib published that, and the editor there at the time who picked up uh, that, that manuscript purposely picked up Bloodline because it's got no theme. It's got funny poems. It got it has serious poems. It's got political poems. It's got domestic husband-wife poems. It's got poems about animals. It has poems about children. You know, so it runs a gamut of voices and themes. And that's what she was looking for. Great. Exposed from Soma had the theme of, of redemption, had the theme of recovery. And I'm so happy that it was picked up by Soma. I'm so happy that responses I get from the ebook version of it from versions of poems that I read out at readings have touched people that if they haven't gone through recovery, their mother has, their father has, their friends have. And I, I say recovery here with my case of being physical recovery, but recovery here could be an addiction recovery, a psychological recovery. So it's, it's very wonderful. I think that Soma's exposed has such a cohesive unit yeah, I, I, I was definitely proud to be a, a little bit a part of that. And um, it certainly lives up to uh, my ideas about strength to be human because here's another take on that. You know, the strength to be human to sort of put yourself back together again. That, that's That was incredible and wonderful. Oh, thank you, Mark. Yeah, and, and your introduction, you know, really cements that too. So the, so the third book uh, it's coming out this summer from Kelsey Books is called New Paths to Eden. Because really, that's what love is, I think, at least for me. I mean, every breakup has led to a better new love, and that better new love has taken me closer to Eden. And it's a line from the last poem in the book. The, the, the arc follows, of course, teenage infatuation on through to the first stages of puppy love, up through to, wow, this is a real love now, to marriage to the honeymoon phase, to the, uh, you know, we're coexisting in the same domicile phase. 
to, you know, I don't like you so much anymore phase to the, oh, you are the worst person I've ever met phase <laughs> to the, okay, now we're divorced and we're kind of over each other. And now we're kind of looking back and we're wistful. And now we found someone new and we're okay with ourselves and we're okay with life again. And we are indeed on a new path to Eden. So it runs that gamut that a lot of us have run in our lives over the course of a couple dozen poems. So I'm happy with the, with the project. I'm happy that I had a body of so many uh, poems that fit with that theme instead of a whole bunch of, oh, divorce poems. Or, oh, love, love is a wonderful thing poems. Well, no, it's, you know, we, we can write others. We can write all the different types of love we go through. And they're in there, and, and they're in New Paths to Eden, and I'm extremely happy that it was picked up by Kelsey Books, and I'm looking forward to the final product. Um, the manuscript has been through three different editorial you know, changes. Right now it's in its final stage, and this goes right back to our first five minutes of this episode, Mark. I needed those other eyes to help me out to... Well, Mike, I think this poem should be fourth, not sixth. Well, Mike, why did you need so many stanzas here? Can we cut this out? That you know, I needed those other eyes to really get this book whipped into good shape. Not that the poems were crappy, folks. <laughs> no, I understand. It's that we need we need real cohesion if the art is going to work on the universal level. Yes, Mike, this is your divorce. We get it. But how can this speak to all people who are going through thinking about or reflecting on a divorce? Oh, all right. Thanks. You know, let's talk about this then. So <clears throat> I'd go back and forth with different editors that I hired to help me out with this. And, and they're dear friends. And Wash Donnelly, a matter of fact, Mark, uh, who you interviewed. Yeah, what a, what a wonderful, an wonderful lady. And, and what a, what a tremendous... Yeah. I got such a great response from that show when I was kind of wondering because yeah. her transition is not your average one for, for a literary show. So it's pretty incredible. I'll tell you, Anne is doing such wonderful, brave work. And, I mean, I think she's up for an award for a play. Okay, so here's Griffith doing his poetry, and he's proud he can write a sonnet and a haiku. Who would look at me? I can... <laughs> Anne Wash Donnelly is writing all that poetry and fiction and essays, and now an award-nominated play. I mean, this woman is just a powerhouse. So I knew she was good. I had edited for Blue Nib and for Anne uh, her short story manuscript, The Gravedigger's Wife, which was so... No, I'm sorry, The Undertaker's Wife. The Undertaker's Wife. Yes. It's such a good story, number one, but such a good collection, number two. So I helped see that to the light of day. So I figured, well, Anne can do me a good turn. I, you know... She she paid me to edit the the manuscript. I'll pay her. You know, it's, it's almost like we we Peter paid Paul for the same thing. Mm -hmm. Well, well, she indeed gave me some really valuable insight, and I went, I went to some other editors to get the manuscript kicked into shape for Kelsey because they're a serious outfit. They you know they want the final product as the first product. They don't want to have to coach you through. They're kind of a gatekeeper in the sense that look, we get how many manuscripts in a month. We can only publish how many manuscripts in a, in a year. It's got to be in really good shape once it hits our desk. Yes. So um, I'm very proud of it, that they accepted it. I'm very proud that it made it through so many sets of eyes, including Ann Wash Donnelly's. And I don't feel that 
no pulmonary is no longer mine. I feel that it has been bolstered by my editorial friendships that I made. Right, and that, that's that's how that's exactly how I feel. But I have to realize that there's not going to be a, a, a real consensus on that. Some people have a, a different feeling yeah. about it, and it doesn't mean that their feeling is wrong. It's just just really different than mine. I'm, I'm so happy uh, for her, and I'm so proud of what she's been doing. I'm so glad to have had her on. You know, early when things are really starting for her, and, and without the try, I don't want to try to sound flippant over here or corny, but I, I just I always got the notion then and even certainly now I could be right, but I always felt that that whole transition for her and holding a lot of that back from her maybe it might have held her back creatively for such a long time, and that's why she's just sort of bursting out there. I just got that feeling without sounding ridiculous. It just just gives me the feeling that that's what's happening. It's all coming out, you know. I would I would believe you're right, and and this goes back to what we talked about with that strength to be human and the discomfort that makes you have to transform and grow. Can you imagine if if Anne and and if Anne's listening, hello Anne, I love you, and I hope I'm not over speaking for you here. But can you imagine if Anne stayed married? You know, can you imagine if Anne, uh, you know, led the life that she felt society wanted her to lead? Well, number one, we would not have the wonderful art of Anne Walsh Donnelly. But number two, how unhappy would she be? How, how, how gray would her world seem? And how short would her horizon seem? I'm sure she would be a wonderful, fulfilling friend, mother, you know, teacher character. Anne would be a wonderful person. Yeah, Anne herself would not be as fulfilled, certainly, Mark. And I think you're absolutely right then. The need for change, the need for transformation that Anne went through, and arguably, you know, we all still go through these things, but Anne certainly has bloomed so very, very, very much like a phoenix, not to overuse the term. But, uh, no, it's, 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 it's flat-eyed inspirational. It, it really is. My my wife, God lover, is is one of the best things uh, in my life ever, ever, ever. And I know husbands say that just to get good points, but no, she knows I honest to gosh mean it. And all of our friends know I mean it. And, and I say it at least once a week to them, so they're sick of hearing it. They kind of roll their eyes like, yeah, Mike, we know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but on Mark, she, when I was first going through my health crisis, and, and not to belabor things, and, and the episode is getting long, I know, but so basically, folks, I, uh, over the course of about three years, went through an amputation of my right leg. And we'll just leave it at that. I'm, I'm, I'm presently now walking. I'll be driving. I'm, you know, Many people don't even know I've got the prosthetic leg. and what, But anyway, that's three damn long, hard years, fellas. <laughs> you know, so I'm going through the physical therapy. I'm living for a year in a nursing home, and I'm feeling really cut off from people. And I'm really month one of this all. I am getting so frustrated, Mark, and I am every hour asking, why me? Why me, Lord? Why me? I lost my job. I lost my livelihood. I lost my home. You know, in, in this first month, a lot of dominoes in my life are falling. Well, you know, Mike, you can't walk again for another year. How are you going to go back home when you have to go up steps by yourself and go down your long, narrow hallway and a walker won't fit. I, I couldn't drive. I, you know, So life changed so much. Why me? 
Why me, Lord? Why me? And you know what? My girlfriend got so tired of me saying that and got so tired of me whining to her. She's like, you know what? Turn yourself around. You are stuck in the mud. See your way out of this. Or I really don't want to talk to you too much more. But, but honey, you got to come visit. But, no, I know. But, 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 honey, I got to talk to you. I don't got to talk to you. Oh, my. Well, yeah, you know. Wow. You know what? But we needed that. I needed that slap. And it wasn't a, a real slap. It, it was online, of all things. But, you know, what I, mean? I need to be shoved out of my own mud. And then God love her. Through the other weeks and months to come, she turned me to creativity. She turned me to poetry. She bought me a laptop because at home I only had a home PC. She was forever buying me pens, pencils, and you know, reading my stuff and, 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 and ooing and awing and this and that and, and urging me. So without that transformation, in my case it was physical and a bit spiritual, I learned to see silver linings in everything. My, my wife allowed that to happen in me. And that really wasn't her intent. Her intent was just to get me off her back, to get me to stop whining at her. <laughs> but she helped me grow as a man. You know, she helped me grow as a human. So without these transformations at whatever age in our lives, you know, we're not going to become the people to our fullest potential. Yeah, and that's the word there is potential. Because I, 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 mm -hmm. I think of not just the lost potential of, of Anne, you know, if she didn't make that, that, that transformation or that transition, but just imagine how many thousands and, and, and hundreds of thousands of people over the centuries that we put in in basements and closets and, and in forced places and forced lives that because of our fear and hatred, uh, we never got everything we could have got from them. Who knows what we missed in art and in inventions and in medicine that could have been done. But instead, these people wind up living these miserable lives because we put them in there because we didn't want to understand. Though. They, we, we, they just didn't fit in some some i don't know uh, frame that we had for them they wanted to be somebody else so uh, she's, no, a, she's no, a perfect indeed. example of, of us not being uh, stupid and 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 then realizing wow look at what we've gotten from this yeah yeah no all, all kudos to Anne, and i do you know hope she listens to this and then we are serious in our praise and folks uh, you know if you don't know who we're talking about Anne walsh donnelly all three words, Google it. She's an Irish writer of immense power. And do yourself a big favor. Google search her, Amazon search her. You won't be sorry. We're going to have her on later on this year. I, I laugh with her. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I laugh with okay. her and I say, you know what? You're one of the first Irish girls I actually understand. So it's good to know <laughs> we could actually speak. Yeah, because she, she yeah, has a yeah, bit of an yeah. accent, but uh, you, you get used to it. And then you, once you get an ear for it, uh, and I'm really really happy with her and definitely fond of everything that she does and you know it's really a, a true life example of all the things we talked about you can be somebody that believes in in this transition and understands the truth of it all without having to be some political blowhard about it just simply accept it as something that's natural and you see the beautiful results so that's all people have to be and, and see that and they don't have to you know, have a parade or a protest every week about something. Sometimes it's just yes. it's just respecting somebody and then realizing they they have a tail. They have a tail, and that tail can still reach you even if you're not of that persuasion because it's a human tail. Well, yeah, exactly, and that's the key. We are we all are indeed human, and uh, you know, again, reading outside your comfort zone. I mean, okay, so I'm a white middle class middle aged male. Well, if all I did was read. 
that sort of poetry, that's all I'm going to be able to write. That's all I can be able to reflect upon. I need to read the poetry of young black men, of gay, you know, Hispanic old men. I've, I've got to read the poetry of urban and rural people. I've got to read the poetry of Polish people, Russian people, German. You know, I've got to, I've got to read it all to understand it as best as I can all. And not, not to, okay, now I'm going to write like a young homosexual from Chicago. No. But to be able to understand the viewpoint of humanity from the young homosexual living in Chicago's viewpoint. I don't need that viewpoint. He doesn't need my viewpoint, but can we at least come to terms that each other's viewpoint is valid, they exist, and you might actually enjoy mine. I might actually enjoy yours. So, no, we can't be scared to, to read new things, try new things, taste new flavors, you know, whatever you want to say. And and we need to challenge ourselves. Uh, I'm just so happy to have all, all of you folks on board. It really helps, uh, I think, the show and in, in, in part of its mission is to let some of these voices out there so other folks can hear and, and maybe be in, in inspired about what they're doing in their life. Uh, take something from you about, um, you know, examining in a poem in and out, uh, using, even if on a temporary basis, uh, writing as a form of, of self-therapy, uh, uh, mm -hmm. of her realizing that uh, inside her writing might have been the truth of who she was all along, and it was only that took time to get to that point, but her writing was already telling her. It, it, it almost sounds yeah. like a cable show, but it was the God's honest truth. So it, oh, it's yeah. just in, incredible things that can happen with with writing, and, and they can only happen to those that are willing to, to look into the mirror, even if they got to squint now and then, and, and start realizing what's there and, and what they can do to either improve upon it or, or just to show it to the rest of the world. And that's what I like about the interview uh, process in, in our show. And as few as I've done so far, believe it or not, I wish I could do more, and I continue to try to mm. do more. It's it's worth the pursuit. That's the only reason. I laughed with John. I said, you know, if these interviews wasn't worth it, I would have dropped them a long time ago. I got plenty of, you know, regular shows and standalone shows and all kinds of topics I could talk about. I don't have to be trying to pursue somebody for six or seven months, but I do it because it is uh, so so valuable, but also because it is so darn unique. You you can't make up a show. You know, when you're talking to, uh, to to Mike Griffin, you're getting something you're not going to get before. You couldn't dream it up. And that's why the, the, these shows are so important, because it really gives people uh, a real-life specimen of what's going on, you know, creatively at the moment with that person. I, I'm really glad we finally did sync up in time, and this came to be, Mark. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful time, and, and hopefully we'll be able to do it again later on in the year, maybe discuss more about whatever your new book is is coming out there. Uh, keep in mind, uh, folks, uh, his other book, Exposed, is uh, available there on uh, our, our Soma uh, publishing, uh, com, And you'll also see that I have a link to his print version, which is at another printer because we only do ebooks. We don't do print books. And I allowed that because it just makes sense. And, uh, mm -hmm. if you, of course, if you follow him on Facebook, you'll learn some of the other things he has out there, particularly this other book that's going to be coming out in, in a few months. And, You'll, you'll see, of course, his work uh, in past and present on, on Aerial Chart and, and in other publications. And I'm sure that uh, once he finishes his settling and in, in his move, you know, he'll be out there shooting out some more stuff for us to, to check out as well. But I'm also uh, happy to have a fellow New Jerseyan person on the phone because it almost seems like everybody I talk to is from not from New Jersey. So it's certainly nice to have a, a hometown link. 
haven't been there in so long. Jersey Rocks. <laughs> That's it, Jersey Rocks. Haven't been there Jersey for, so, Rocks. for so long. It's just kind of fun to have somebody out there. Although your accent is just not as pronounced as mine for some reason. I don't know why. Well, I was born in Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, that's probably why. That's was, probably why. I was, I, I'm a transplant to Jersey. I came to Jersey after the you know operations were all done and all that about two years ago. That's probably and why. And we are near Princeton and, you know, central Jersey. I, I don't know that it has necessarily a discernible accent of the typical Jersey sort that you talked about. Yeah, then we're, we're more from the <laughs> north. I'm, I'm from the north of Jersey, so... Definitely has what part? Uh, Hoboken, you know, land of Frank oh, Sinatra oh, yeah, and G. Yeah, Gordon yeah, Liddy and all kinds Sinatra. of wonderful people. We've got a lot of a lot of yeah. characters. Yeah, so no, no, Hoboken has a huge poetry scene too. Jersey is saturated with poetry. I mean, it's I wow. It, it's talk about silver linings. Yeah, it, it's like okay, I'm going to live here now, and whoa, I have how many poetry clubs I can go to? Whoa, there's how many spoken word venues here now? Whoa, well, I, I talk. No, it, it, it's incredible. I, I spoke to uh, I spoke to the owner of Maxwell's in the, in the late '80s when I when I got back uh, from the from the Air Force uh, on on leave, and uh, he had um, uh, Bruce Springsteen do the video Glory Days there. And and, yeah. and they were doing some poetry readings there and everything, and he had made some big public announcement about, yeah, we're bringing poetry back to Hoboken. And I'm like, oh, dude, I need to stop you, okay? This place, okay, <laughs> used to be full of rough-and-tumble people like my father, who worked in Bethlehem Steel, and my uncle who worked at Maxwell Coffee House, which is across the street. That's why it's called Maxwell's. And I go, they yes. were doing poetry stuff, whether, they were, whether it was profane, whether it was drunk, or whether it was just a bunch of Irish guys singing. I go, but they were doing it for decades before you guys came aboard. So the, the town has had a long history of that. And I'm glad you're continuing with it in a different way. But uh, you're not the first and um, definitely won't be the last. No, no. Jersey is full of them. So, yeah, it's a wonderful place to live. We have to be this way, folks. If you know anything about the East Coast or about New Jersey, we're bigger and we're bolder. And guess what? We have a, a more outsized personality. And the reason why is because... If we didn't, we'd just be a shadow of New York. And who the hell wants that? So people from New Jersey know they have to do something more to stand out. That's the only way it has to be. That's why we have so many exactly. famous actors and singers from there, and we all have to be bigger than we are because if not, like I said, you, you say New York and you forget all about New Jersey. So yeah, we, no, exactly. we make sure that if you're going to talk about New York, you're not going to forget about New Jersey. And that's part of why we do it. I don't know if it's a self-conscious thing or maybe a slightly insecure thing. But it's it, it's it's a real phenomenon that we understand that, you know, if, if we're going to live and survive and even succeed, we've got to make sure that, uh, you know, we don't have a New York overshadow on us. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. All right, Mike. I really appreciate you coming talking. on board. And it's okay. It went long. We've had a few interviews that have gone long before. I'm just happy. I'm just happy to have them. And I know I've been trying to get you on board and doing this for quite some time now. So. I couldn't be any any more happy and, of course, any more fond of your work and, and you as a person out there instructing people because you're literally doing the things I talk about on a regular basis and you do it on a daily basis. So that that's that's a guy right there. I, I don't care if you think he's preaching on the show. He's practicing too, and that's what's, that's what's important out there. Mike, thank you very much. Mark, thank you, and thank you, everyone, for listening. You have a great evening. You too, Mark. Talk to you soon. Got it. All right, folks, that's another wonderful wrap-up of an interview with Mike Griffin, poet, instructor, resident of New Jersey. Yeah, and this is Strength to be Human. God bless.
Okay, that was great, Mark. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, worked out well. I think we got a lot of. Uh, I'm really happy that. Hello, and welcome to the Strength to Be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright Mark Anthony Rossi. This show explores all forms of creativity for those searching for meaning and a place in the world. To err is human, but so is to love. Now, without further ado, here's your host, 